Hi, Mike McGrath here, host of You Bet Your Garden. Now, you may be listening in the Lehigh Valley on our brand new public radio station. You may be listening to one of our wonderful affiliate stations around the country. Or, like half a million to a million people, you might be listening to our podcast. And I want to especially reach out to our podcast listeners. You can help support this show and Lehigh Valley Public Media, who are the people who get it out there for you week after week, by becoming a member of Lehigh Valley Public Radio. And if you do, we will send you a very special thank you gift. I know from your emails and phone calls that you all think more of Ducky than you probably do of me. Well, we're going to send you your own little lucky duck. He's a tiny little duck. He's about the size of a dime, but he's beautifully painted and put together. And he comes with a lucky duck story card. And it is all yours for a pledge of $60 at youbetyourgarden.org. Now, with that pledge, you become a member of Lehigh Valley Public Broadcasting, and that means you get access to Passport and can watch lots of PBS shows. But you're also going to have your own lucky duck to carry around with you. Now, if you're listening on an affiliate station, make a pledge to them because they're there for us. But if you're a podcaster or listening locally, we would love to have you join as a member. Once again, that's a pledge of $60 at YouBetYourGarden.org. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. I'm Holiday Snoozin' Mike McGrath, and you're listening to an encore presentation of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and TV at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Welcome to a very special holiday hangover episode of You Bet Your Garden, coming to you from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath, and this episode is very special because we ran it at the same time last year and we don't have to come in again. So maybe you heard it, maybe you didn't. But please enjoy it, and at the end of the show, we will have an ethical discussion about the use of fall leaves that may have gone to feed your landscape if you didn't grab them all instead. All right, here we go. We're going to start with those fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Glossy, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Oh, Mike, it's so great to see finally speak to you. How are you? I am just Ducky. Thanks for asking. Ducky's always happy to get his little uh, exercise in. And um, how are you and where are you? I'm calling from beautiful Camden, New Jersey. Okay. Just across the Ben Franklin Bridge. Yeah. Yeah. My my question was, I just wanted to let you know, in previous years, I've... um, planted uh, collards and uh, kale 
but on large containers on my balcony. Mm -hmm. I'm a senior that lives in an apartment building. And uh, I love it. I love the gardening. I'd rather do that than plant flowers because I feel, feel it's more uh, practical. Right. And you know good eating. I mean? Oh, you aren't kidding. But my question is uh, regarding the upcoming year, mm -hmm. I, I'm concerned with those lantern bugs. I understand they're a bunch of sap suckers. And um, I just was wondering if bothering planting in my... Uh, favorite vegetables would uh, be even worse the effort. So you're talking about the spotted lanternfly, which despite yes. the name is not an exceptionally good flyer. It mostly hops from plant to plant. So people who want to look up extension bulletins on this pest, you always, almost always see um, the spotted lanternfly with its, with its wings spread and mm -hmm. you know, crazy clown colors and everything. But that's deceiving because you're not gonna see them like that in nature or in your garden. They are like plant hoppers with those wings folded up all the time. Mm. And the thing that I find most intriguing about them is the larval form, the juvenile form, literally look like cartoon dice. They are square, they're spotted, they got those early Mickey Mouse rubber tire legs. Um, they are, I would say they're adorable, except they are tremendously pestiferous. Now their primary uh, host plant, the one they love to you know, attack, and they will cover it with thousands of lanternfly adults is the tree of heaven, Elianthus, which, mm -hmm. uh, depending on what part of Camden you're in, could be growing wild all over your area. That's the tree you ever see an abandoned building that's crumbling, but there's a yeah. beautiful tree growing out of like the eighth floor. That's, mm. that's the tree of heaven. It was, it, it, another imported tree was felt to be invasive and pestiferous, um, but it turns out that it's a great, trap crop for these lantern flies. Uh, the advice has been to cut down any tree of heaven you have on your property, um, but I would always advise leaving one there and then they're going to attack it and not your good place. Leave everything else alone. Yes, and also when the tree is covered with these lantern flies, you can go out there with a high pressure burst of water knock them off the tree and kill a good three quarters of them. Ah. So there are other hosts that we know of are grapevines. I've heard about them really infesting maple trees and I've heard about them crossing over into fruit trees and the grapevines and the fruit trees are the uh, biggest worry because those are big mm. commercial crops in our area. Mm -hmm. But Although I, you know, it's so foolish of me, but two or three years ago when I saw the larval form, the crazy dice in my garden, I didn't know what they were. And I kept looking them up, looking them up and couldn't find them. And then some extension service mailed me their kit on these things and in a children's coloring book, finally I saw images of these creatures and I went, oh, Man, there, there had been like 10 of them on my roses, but there was no damage to the roses. And over oh, the okay. years, I've probably only seen five lanternflies total. 
on my property. Well, I'm well, pretty this, confident. Uh, I'm pretty confident that they're not going to go after your collards, collards or other greens. They tend to move much more towards woody plants like trees and grapevines. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I, could, I guess I'll go out there in the garden. Oh, yeah, you, you got to. Uh, absolutely. It keeps you young. It's wonderful to do. And you know, what, what are you growing besides collards, you said? Well, uh, kale. Okay. You, they're probably the two healthiest greens you could ever possibly eat. Well, I think so. All right. Well, good luck to you. And I'm glad you don't have to worry about them right now. Oh, thank you so much for your help. And it's been so grand talking to you. I've been waiting to talk to you for a long time. Well, call us anytime. Thank you so much. All right. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Judy, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi there. Hello, Judy. How are you? I'm okay. Very good. Where is Judy okay? Um, a little north of Nashville, Tennessee. Okay, very good. What do you, you live in a little town? Uh, yes, it's Lafayette, Tennessee. Lafayette. Okay. Lafayette. The northerners would say Lafayette. Oh, okay. Which is what we would say. Um, we are just in the shadow of Lafayette College here. Yes. So, but I won't argue. Let's just say Judy near Nashville. What can we do you for? <laughs> well, last um couple of years i have lived in an area where i had pawpaw trees oh excellent and i harvested the pawpaws and i made pawpaw jelly and all kinds of stuff with it um and we ate them till we just couldn't stand it <laughs> well i moved away and i took with me a large tupperware of dried seeds that I had harvested, laid on paper towels until right, they were yeah. dry uh, and stored. And they didn't germinate. No. Right. I knew that. <laughs> so. So, I mean, I have even gone as far as to call the Arboretum Society here in Tennessee to find out what I'm doing wrong. Nah, they probably don't care much about pawpaws. Now, for those... <laughs> For those who don't know, pawpaws are one of the two Native American fruits. Um, they are small trees, they are understory trees, but they produce fairly large fruits that taste of custard. And there are many pawpaw aficionados around the country. And we had a guy on the show a couple years ago, I wish I could remember his name, uh, but he wrote a book about pawpaws that was very, very entertaining. And I've learned a lot from him over the years. Well, the University of Kentucky has done a study on pawpaws, and they have reams of information. Mm -hmm. They were studying them with the angle to feed the world because the pawpaw is some kind of complete fruit. It is also one of the fruits that travels most poorly. Pawpaws are achieve ripeness and then go from ripeness to like uselessness within a very short period of time. Oh yes. So, okay, so let's see. Uh, you said you moved uh to Tennessee? Yes. Where where were your old trees? 
I moved north of, in Tennessee. My old trees were in Nashville, and I moved oh. up here up north. So it's not far? The, no. Okay. No, it's the same zone. Okay. So here's what you want to do. As soon as you told me you dried the seeds, I realized that you had messed up. Because to propagate a pawpaw from seed, the seeds have to be dead ripe and dead fresh and still moist to the touch. So, Uh-oh. okay. So come next year, uh, do you think there's a way you can go back to the trees and harvest some really ripe fruit? You know, even Possibly, ones that yeah. have fallen on the ground, because that's what they do when they get ripe, right? Yes. So can you go back? Uh, maybe. Trespassing? Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, or or just knock on the door and, you know, explain you used to live here and you want to take some pawpaws home. So when you get them home, um, scoop out the seeds, rinse them off, keep them wet. This is the opposite of almost any other propagation by seed. And put them in Ziplocs that are filled with moist perlite. Do you know what perlite is? Mm-hmm. Okay, so perlite is the mine volcanic mineral that pops when they heat it up and it holds water inside its own structure. So, uh, but it also allows water to fro- flow freely in a raised bed. So it's one of those amazing things that drains well, but also holds water. So you take these pawpaw seeds, and while they're still wet, you put them in Ziplocs with, um, with moist perlite. I wouldn't zip the Ziploc fully closed, but um, I would then put them in the refrigerator in an area that stays around 40 degrees, and I think the magic number is 100 days. And then you okay. take them out. And now here's the thing. Pawpaws, as plants, do not transplant well. They have what's called a long taproot. So the best thing you can do is plant, uh, put them in pots and let the sprouts come up in the pots. But then it can be difficult to transplant them. So what I'm going to suggest is you, is you do that. You, you know, plant the seeds in pots and put them outside right away. And, but I would use peat pots or mm-hmm. some other pot that's guaranteed uh, to disintegrate in the ground. That way you can plant them pot and all, and you don't have to worry about the pot strangling the root or trying to do any transplanting. If you're, bra- okay. if you're brave enough and you have enough seeds, there would be nothing wrong with putting some of these seeds that have gone through this cold treatment directly in the ground where you want them to grow. But a lot of times people like to grow them out in pots for the summer and then plant the, the trees in the fall. Um, I, uh, you should also avoid full sun. Uh, pawpaws are understory plants. They can't take full direct sun. Uh, They will bloom and fruit nicely in, you know, light shade. And when the flowers appear, they're pollinated by flies, and the flowers smell like carrion. So (laughs) most, you know, some farmers claim that they will will hang uh, dead chickens in their trees to attract the flies, to pollinate them. Um, The Martha Stewart way 
would be to take a little artist paintbrush and go from flower to flower and do hand pollinating, especially between uh, two different trees. Because if, if, the tr if the trees that you took the original seeds from were doing well in producing fruit, it meant that they were two different varieties. So when you go back, ideally you would collect fruit from different trees. Well, I did not realize that you had to have two trees. Yes, yes, you need two different varieties. And, and a, a lot of times... I just had one for a while. I lived there 14 years. And yeah? I just had one tree for a while. And it bloomed and fruited. Yes. Did you hand pollinate it? No. Okay. I found out that the guy across the road had a volunteer one. There you go. And it... Um, but we didn't know. I didn't know it was there. He didn't know it was there. Right. It was in the middle of his bamboo forest. Oh, sure. Okay. Well, that's great, though. That was your pollinator plant. So um, I don't know if you can get into the forest or whatever. But at least to get started, that's what you do. You collect dead ripe fruit. You keep the seeds moist. You chill them for a little over three months. Then you pot them up, and then you plant them. Okay. So, so this this bucket of dried seed that I have is completely useless. Completely useless unless you got chickens. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's what gardening is all about, Judy. Its success is built on stacks and stacks of failure, but especially epic failures. That's that's that was a that's the road to heaven for gardeners. Well, that was a doozy. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly, I had them all over the house on paper. I'll tunnels. bet you they did. Yeah. Everywhere. Uh huh. Well, it's a unique decorating style. I'm sure your neighbors and friends appreciate it. Oh, they didn't like the trees either. Oh yeah. Well, they're they're not ornamental. Let's put it that way. But if you love the fruit, yeah, it's it's fabulous. Now it was in a it was in a, a upscale neighborhood. And <laughs> the trees are bent over. They yeah. Were they were underneath. Um, of a big cedar tree, mm -hmm. and they the neighbors kept going. You know, when are you gonna cut that ugly bush down? And they like, tell them never. <laughs> it's a valuable Native American fruit. Yeah, look at the uh, research that the University of Kentucky has done on pawpaws. It is incredible. There are several universities around the country, especially in that island on the map where pawpaws grow well, that are interested in the trees. And um, even experts sometimes have trouble propagating them, but um, I'm pretty I'm pretty certain of the information I just gave you. I'm fabulous. I am very excited. Thank you so much. All right. Good luck, Judy. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and suggest that all of you with a cut Christmas tree in the house, recycle that tree in your own backyard. Take off any ornaments, duh, and tinsel. Does anybody still use tinsel? Stand the tree up in the backyard and hang suet feeders on it. Winter birds will come for the high-protein suet and enjoy the protection of the tree's dense branches. I'm overly dense Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA.
Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome to a very special holiday hangover episode of You Bet Your Garden, coming to you from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath, and this episode is very special because we ran it at the same time last year and we don't have to come in again. So maybe you heard it, maybe you didn't. But please enjoy it, and at the end of the show, we will have an ethical discussion about the use of fall leaves that may have gone to feed your landscape if you didn't grab them all instead. All right, here we go. We're going to start with those fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Wayne, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Yes, thank you so much for having me on. Well, thank you so much for being had, Wayne. Where are you, man? Um, in the middle of Montana with snow on the ground, and it's actually snowing right now and icy out. Billings, Montana. Oh, wow, yeah, you get a lot of snow. Now, do you like it? Are you a skier, a winter sports guy? Uh, you know, it used to be. I get a little, little older and a little bit busy now, but, uh, um, you know, to, to, to survive the winter in Montana... Um, I start gardens in our basement. I, it's in my manscape. Oh, okay. What are you growing? Um, all kinds of leaf lettuce and kale and arugula and some flowers. And it's a contest between compost, plants growing in, in fresh homemade compost, plus uh, hydroponics. Oh, okay. Um, wow. What are you, first, what are you using for lighting? For a budget? Lighting. Light. You know, like artificial sun. Oh, oh, oh um, yeah, I have a couple of different kinds of lights down there. One I got off the Internet that's just a round bulb that has a, a full spectrum on it. Right. Another one is LED lights in a little square box with all the nice colors. Right. And then I went and bought one real fancy, expensive one just to test different lights. Excellent, excellent. Um, and how are your results so far? <laughs> Actually, I had to drag my wife down in the. It's in the basement in in my man's cave. I said, "Do you know these these kale leaves are as big as my hand now?" And just a few days ago, um, they weren't. So that the roots are finally actively in the water where the plants just explode. But interesting enough is there's a cup system down there. I call it window food. It's half compost half hydroponic solution underneath the uh, compost in the second cup. Huh, so the plants get started growing in the compost and then the roots get down to the hydroponic area. That's right, I poke a hole in the bottom, big holes in the bottom of the, of the first cup and then the second cup has a solution in it. And it seems like once those roots hit that solution, 
um, the plant explodes. Now that's interesting. This is, um, obviously I know of complete hydroponic systems. I know of indoor growing systems that only use soil and compost. Um, but you're making a hybrid here. That's exactly right. Yeah. And uh, I'm having fun. I call it window food because I have some just growing in the window to, to see how our Southern lights here that shine in our house, you know, do, do. so yeah, we can eat most of the winter, um, some leaves. But uh, uh, aren't you getting very short hours of daylight right now? Yes, we, we are. We're down to, oh, I think we're, we're under about 12 now, so we're down to about 11 or something like that. It'll get a little bit shorter. It comes up at 6 and goes down at about 4, and, you know, just, what is it, December 21st, the shortest day? Uh, it's 22nd, I believe. That, uh, that doesn't <laughs> sound that different than um, Pennsylvania. I guess you got to go up uh, a lot more north to get the crazy hours of day. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, go to Canada. So are you just bragging? Is there, some, is there something we can do for you? You, you know, uh, um, I, I'm a pusher of compost. I have been for the last 11 years. A little background is uh, um, Farmer to Farmer has a program to send people uh, with skills overseas to help struggling people in third world countries. Right. And I've made 21 trips to 10 different countries now over the last 11 years. That's amazing. Um, where have yeah. you been? Um, mostly Africa, mm-hmm. uh, six different countries in Africa, but then some of the tropics like Jamaica and Guatemala and Nicaragua and Mexico and and you know you know the the Africans. One one trip was um, five months in Africa, mostly in Rwanda. Mm. That's uh, that could be dicey. Yeah, uh, we love Rwanda. The the one country had a little trouble was was Ethiopia, but uh, it it it's okay. African people uh, are an amazing bunch of farmers that live without money. And uh, our very first trip to South Africa, we fell flat on our face. We're unsuccessful because we brought modern ideas that cost money. Right. And when I say they don't have money, th- some of the villages do not even generate garbage. Well, you know, it's funny that you talk about this. I just gave a talk to an international women's group about uh, a book that I wrote with Bob Rodale in 1990 called Save Three Lives, and it was about famine prevention in the third world. And Bob had exactly the same tack. He said, you can't bring farm machines over here. You can't expect them uh, to try to make this into Iowa. But if you're careful enough and you go back in their history, you will find that they had methods of water harvesting and eating wild plants and having an endless supply of firewood, which, as you know, is is one of the huge causes of soil degradation over there, cutting down too many trees. But um, there are many trees that regrow, so you can actually harvest them. And Bob and I did this... uh, book that was mostly about these solutions and they're all small scale the people don't have to buy anything you just teach them how to harvest the little rainwater that comes down you know maybe you set up a nursery um, to grow these leguminous trees for them that provide food and fodder for any animals they may have firewood 
and they grow back again. You can cut them um, constantly without harming them. Right, that's that's great. We see people, um, especially children, packing um, just sticks because everybody seems to do the same method of of cooking, and that's usually indoors or in a little shed behind their mud hut um, with sticks and three rocks and a pot, mm-hmm. and, and it's always always about the same. But I have another thing that that I'm really trying to push on to help everybody, and it's it's connected to our our global climate uh, changes going on, too, and I call it naked land no more. <laughs> I, I want them to quit burning everything they they have in their fields, especially their croplands, and they burn it for unusual reasons, like one African told me in, that, in um, Tanzania, if you don't clean your fields really, really clean, your neighbors will call you lazy. <laughs> yeah, well... There are some cultural issues to deal with, that's for sure. Yeah. So I come up with something that really works because Farmer to Farmer sends us over there, even won an award for all this stuff. Uh, uh, I had to go to D.C. and get an award for a volunteer of the year. But anyway, um, I taught them um, don't burn money. Those three words uh, seem to resonate in them, and uh, I would take – out there, native money, the local money, mm-hmm. and light a match. <gasps> and here's this white guy's going to go burn some of their money. Mm-hmm. And I said, every time you guys burn these fields or this organic, you know, dry vegetation here, you're burning money because I can take that and turn it into compost, which I can turn it into money. And, and they caught on right away. And even my last trip in Zambia for a month, at least last August, um, somebody went over there and there were two ladies that had went to my class walking down the road and some farmer was about ready to burn his big old cornfield, all the stalks and stuff. And they ran over and chewed him out and said, don't burn money. And he quit. Excellent. Excellent. Um, congratulations. Thank you. One of the things I learned writing the book with Bob Rodale was that every time something like that happens, when a forest is clear cut, or when crop residues are burned, that helps the desert move in that much closer. Whereby if something is kept growing and you can enlarge the area of the growing, it actually pushes the desert back. It can make the desert recede. So anything, anything. It's all about the water, the water cycle. In fact, one of the other ways to, to teach the people there, because th- this is um, pretty rural, primitive people. I don't call them poor anymore at all. They know how to live without. I, I'd rather use those terms because they just they live as they did a thousand years ago in, in some of the very rural communities, and you would understand that. But uh, anyway, um, to demonstrate this, we would uh, scratch the ground and and clear it off in a little square area and pour like 12 liters of water on there, do another one where we chop down deep in the ground, pour water in there, and another one chopped down deep and then covered. I don't like the chopping down, but anyway, uh, it's covered with uh, maybe six inches of uh, dry organic matter, yep. uh, um, the mulch, the grass, whatever we can find, leaves, and uh, pour water on that and come back the next day, and the one covered is still very wet. Yep. The one that was bare, chopped, it's got a little moisture. But the one that was just what I call naked land, African call it naked land, 
the water's all gone yes. in one day. What, what Bob called that was creating artificial springs. And oh. it's a tactic where it takes it a little bit further than you. But you've seen these handheld uh, tools where you tamp down ground. Well, it turns out in these tropical soils, if you tamp it down good and hard, water will run off of that. And you, yep. you make a little ditch, a very tiny little ditch, and you tamp down all around it, and then you arrange for these little ditches to bring to an area that, yes, you have dug out and you've really pounded the ground underneath nice and hard, and then you divert all this water that would be lost to the sand into this artificial well, this artificial spring, and as you say, it's important to put uh, material on top to prevent evaporation, um, but all of that water gets saved for use. Oh, yeah, it's, it's kind of like catching rainwater, but it's on the ground and a permaculture thing. Exactly. They're one of the most amazing stories. Uh, two women uh, workers over there were testifying before Congress, and they came up with a plan whereby they tamped down the ground around a big open area that had uh, an area below it, like six feet lower. It was on a little bit of a cliff. And they tamped down all the area on the cliff and on the sides, and they put a barrel into the ground. And then in, a, in another area, they put a barrel in the ground, but they didn't tamp down any, any sand around it. They got, that night, they got a tenth of an inch of rain. They harvested 25 gallons of water. Oh, marvelous, marvelous, yeah. It's so, like they, they, they tin roofed the soil to, and then guided it into a re reserve uh, storage area. And it's enough to keep a family going with livestock in areas that get four to six inches of rain a year. Oh, wow. Because yeah. you don't waste it, any. So, Wayne, it sounds like you're doing great. But I would urge you, I think you would love to read the book. It's called Save Three Lives. Well, it, what was that, day three? Save Three Lives, because we wanted to tell people you're not going to save the world. But how great would it be to save one life, to save two lives, to save three lives? Three by, lives. by endorsing these simple ideas. It was published by the Sierra Club in mm, okay. 1990. You can find used copies available online, and the primary author is Robert Rodale, with me as the secondary. Yeah, which I, I met once down in Albuquerque, shook his hand. Yeah, right. he was one of the smartest guys I ever knew. Yeah, yeah, that would be beautiful. Yeah, um, we have a, um, uh, put together a book, and the, the simplicity of this, it's dirt simple, is you make compost out of you know, the wasted rubbish laying around anywhere in the world mm -hmm. and put it on top of your poor soil and grow in that. Now, is this a real book or a pamphlet you give out? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a book called Gardening for Life, No Money Required. You have to have the no money required to find it. It's on Amazon, and it's after 11 years of doing this, 
I put all our ideas together with the African photos that's highly illustrated mm-hmm. of people making compost and growing food and and how we did the square foot garden thing and mm-hmm. and I, I ran into a problem with square foot a, a fellow tasked tapped me on the shoulder and said, Mr. Wayne, I have 10 children. I can eat that small garden in one day. And I thought, oh, he's right. So I came home and I carbon loaded some compost with some other organic wasted material. And I grew 50 carrots in a square foot. That's and amazing. I did the, I did the math on a, on a four foot by eight foot box. Mm-hmm. His Ten children had to eat 21 carrots a day for a week. Oh, well, how terrible. All right, listen, Wayne, we got to go. But this is okay. a, um, a a remarkable story. Um, stay on the line. Our producers will make sure they have all the information on the book, and we'll put it up when this segment airs. Thank you very much. Well, thank Mike. you, sir, and thank you for the good work you're doing. Yes. All right. See you later. Bye-bye. Well, it's time for me to take another little break and again, make a plea for you to take your cut holiday tree outside and cover it with suet feeders to attract bug-eating winter birds who will then stay around and patrol your garden for insect pests all summer long. Bonus, if you leave the tree in its stand, the water it collects may well keep that tree green and fresh until July. Maybe. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in, I'm going to call it still, the Christmas city, because the trees are still up in Bethlehem, PA. Hi, it's Mike McGrath, your host of You Bet Your Garden. And I want to make an appeal to everyone who listens to us on the podcasts. We have three different podcast venues that are out there. We know we have hundreds of thousands of podcast listeners and that they really enjoy the show. Well, now you can help contribute the show by becoming a member of Lehigh Valley Public Media the people who take care of getting that podcast out to you. Become a member at the $60 level, and we will also send you a lucky duck charm that I personally have selected. He's a cute little duck. You can have him up on your mantle. You can carry him around in your pocket, and he will bring you good luck. Make sure you have him with you when you're planting your tomatoes next year. But once again, for a pledge of $60, you'll be supporting this show, we'll be sending you your own Lucky Duck, and you will have access to an amazing array of PBS productions on Passport. All the information is on YouBetYourGarden.org. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. Plants and gardens can have an enormous impact on our everyday lives. At PHS, they believe that a seed can be more than a plant and that gardening can be more than a hobby. PHS is working to plant with purpose and help build healthier communities. Learn more about involvement at phs.org impact. 
Welcome back to a very special holiday hangover episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Why is it very special? Uh, because we're taking parts of shows that aired last year around this time, so we don't have to come in. But... We're still in the stretch right now, cats and kittens, and that means in just a little bit, we'll get to the question of the week about the ethics of harvesting your fall leaves. Did you ever think about what you were doing? Well, we thought about it for you, and we'll tell you what we think, or what we think you should think, or what you're thinking, or anyway, it's after a couple more of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Frank. Welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you very much for taking the call. Well, thank you for making it, Frank. How are you, man? I'm very good. And where is Frank very good? Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Just across the bridge from Philadelphia. Correct. All right. What can we do for Frank in the Garden State? Well, I, at, just before Thanksgiving, uh, bought and set up a worm bin. Mm-hmm. And there was plenty of information online about how you got the worm bid started. And there was information also about what the end product would look like. But going from A to Z, I could, really couldn't find a lot about how you deal with the day-to-day -day stuff. And I've been doing it now for about seven weeks. And as I look at uh, the bin when I go in there and dig around, Things just aren't looking like the end product. So I'm wondering if I'm doing something wrong and had a number of questions about the process once you get started. Okay. Do you have a worm bin that has multiple levels, trays that stack on top of each other, or are you like using a Rubbermaid bin or something? Uh, multiple trays. Oh, okay. Um, that should work just fine. How many trays do you have? Two. Oh, is that all it came with? Yes, there's a, a collection, a, you know, a liquid collection bin below. But. Yes, I understand that. Yeah, the worm tea. Right. So uh, it should be very simple. Um, I have the same uh, device called the worm tower. And what you do is you collect your kitchen waste, um, not cooked food, not leftovers, but uh, raw waste, like the broccoli cores and the apple cores and the browned out lettuce leaves and stuff like that, and coffee filters, coffee, ground coffee, used coffee, spent coffee in the filters. The worms love that. So you, you hold on to that stuff. You collect it until you got enough to cover the tray. And then you simply shred up black and white newspaper until you cover all the kitchen waste in there. Now, presumably, at some point during this process, you got worms to introduce into the bin. So you get your worms in there, and then your goal is to make this nice and moist. They need a uh, moist environment. So you get some clean water, preferably not city tap water, and you pour it gently over top of the shredded newspaper. And it's going to come out the bottom where they got the spigot for collecting the worm tea. And when it does come out the bottom, just keep re-pouring that worm tea over top of the shredded newspaper until you think you've got things at stasis. You don't want it to be too sloppy. You don't want it to be too wet, but you never want to let it dry out. Then when you've collected uh, enough 
enough garbage, enough waste. After that, you put the second tray on top, layer the bottom of that with garbage, and then shred up more black and white newspaper, put that on top and moisten it up. Now, I've got four trays on mine. So the nice advantage to having the extra trays is by the time I'm on my last tray filled with garbage, the first tray down on the bottom is done. It's completely worm castings. Well, that's, that's really one of the questions I had is how long does it take to go from garbage? Because what I did was I, put, I did a little slightly differently than you did, but same idea. Shredded newspaper and some shredded cardboard as a base, put the worms in there and then the garbage on top, and then shredded newspaper, some shredded leaves and, and uh, on top of that. Oh, okay. So you have something blocking the entry to no. the tray. Oh, no. The worms are getting up and down through it. Cause oh, okay. It's, it's, okay. Because they're, they're down in that collection tray. There's a, um, And that's one of the things that really started making me question it. Well, yeah, they escape sometimes. They get down into the into the tray but all you do is you pick a nice day where you can take it outside and then you pour them back into one of the layers oh yeah but it, but the, on the the screen above the uh, liquid collection area yes the screen above it there's it looks like castings there but they are sopping wet and yeah yeah because that. they're getting the most moisture um when you are done when you have a tray that's completely finished you have a couple of options you can take that tray and you can dump it into a working compost pile to really accelerate the compost and supercharge it. Or you can leave it sit out in a cool, dry area, maybe even underneath a ceiling fan with a bunch of newspaper underneath it, and then slowly dry the castings out. And then they'll look like the stuff in the, in the little bags at the garden centers that say worm castings. Okay, so the fact that everything's looking very wet in there now is not bad as long as the worms are moving around and, and being active. If you if you are getting too much worm tea out of the bottom, it would be good if you could pour that. If you have an outdoor compost pile, pour it in that. Um, is, how how is it smelling? How is it doing? Oh, it the, the worm tea is very ripe. Is it supposed to be? It is when you first put the fresh garbage in. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, well, it is. Okay. Well, if it's too ripe to use indoors, uh, I just store it someplace and then use it on outdoor plants or, again, pour it into a compost pile. But that's a sign that you're over moistening. And get that no more cardboard in there. That's totally unnecessary. I know sometimes the instructions give you the 18 things. You're supposed to give them grit and all this kind of stuff. Right. Um, Garbage, shredded newspaper, water, that's all my worms get. I've been doing this for about 12 years now. I get better at it every year. These, these creatures are really the best way to get rid of your, reprocess your kitchen waste. And um, you will find that they work faster in the summertime than they do in the winter. Okay, so about how long is it that it takes for to go from fresh garbage to finished product uh eyes eyes and ears uh or nose you'll see you'll see uh but two to me two trays is not enough to keep going uh with with my system typically by the time i put the fourth tray on top the bottom tray is completely finished 
Okay. So fill it up and then just put another tray on top and just let it go. Correct. All the new trays always go on the top because the worms like to climb up. Okay. Well, that's All right, man. Helpful. Very good. Yeah, and be patient. You're only, you've only been doing this a little while. You will get good at it. It's super easy. And these worm castings are dynamite for your plants. Thank you so much. All right. Good luck, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. cats and kittens it is time for the question of the week which we're calling where should you leave your leaves Teresa in Stillwater Oklahoma writes I know you love fall leaves so do I however I'd like to suggest that you update your information on leaves leaves left alone provide habitat and food for creatures that nourish birds butterflies lightning bugs and numerous other species not to mention nourishing the earth itself. Now, these species are already under stress from changes in the climate, which may even cause some to die off. So we really need to be cognizant of and respectful towards these wee ones. Thank you for your consideration. P.S. I collect leaves from neighborhoods where people don't understand this concept. The leaves are pre-bagged, so they're not difficult to collect. I just have to pull the odd bit of trash out of them. Well, Teresa raises a couple of really good points, so let's review my philosophy on leaves with the caveat that not everyone can do exactly as I do. That's because my house is surrounded by trees, and most of the land around us is heavily wooded with a stream running through it. So I can have my leaves and, and well, not eat them too. That would be too weird even for me. But thanks to my landscape, I can leave some and harvest the rest. If you could see the view from my office window where I saw two beautiful fox playing like puppies in the woods last week, you'd see that the area to the left of the house on the other side of our stream and beyond the fenced-in backyard, fenced in to try and contain the Great Pyrenees we rescue, is covered several inches deep in years' worth of leaves. I have never harvested leaves from these wild areas with the same intentions as Teresa, to leave wild areas wild, somewhat for the benefit of any creatures that prefer these kind of leafy habitats, but mostly for the health of the trees that derive nutrition from those leaves when they eventually break down. But I do try and suck up every leaf that falls around the house and garden for several reasons. The first is common sense, as everyone who has driven on a wet leaf-covered road knows all too well, whole wet leaves defy the very concept of traction. Winter in the north is treacherous enough for slip and fall risk. Leaving my patio covered with wet leaves would probably cancel my insurance policy, if not cancel me personally. And leaving whole leaves on my garden beds would smother the soil, encourage mold, possibly kill my fall-planted garlic, and prevent many of my spring bulbs from emerging properly, especially the early-blooming minor bulbs like glory of snow and snowdrops that can come up in January. That last part is especially important 
in winters when snow hits early and stays late, I sometimes miss the window to suck up and shred the leaves over top of where my spring bulbs are sleeping. And the result is always a disaster, a frantic effort to rescue the emerging plants from this frozen tarp of death that only results in my raking up more bulbs than leaves. Now, my back went out this fall, it's much better now, thank you, in the middle of my shredding. And I know that some spring bulb locations are still covered by matted down wet and or frozen leaves. So that's number one on my to-do list, to try and free those bulbs up on the next nice day before the early ones start to emerge. Now, some of those shredded leaves will go into my compost piles. Some will be saved in giant trash cans for garden mulching in the spring. And many will be dumped right back down where they were after being shredded. Whereby whole leaves mat down and smother the soil, shredded leaves allow air and water through. And plants like spring bulbs, garlic, peonies, and hosta that might otherwise be smothered by whole leaves easily push through the light, loose mulch of shredded leaves. Okay, okay, hostas could probably push through sheet metal. Just wanted to see if you were paying attention out there. Same procedure with my garden beds. I suck up the whole leaves and then empty the collection bag of shredded leaves right back on top of the beds to prevent weeds, erosion, and having to carry the bag back to my compost piles. Lawns. It is critical to get every whole leaf off of your lawn. Early in the season, it's fine to use your lawnmower to mulch the leaves back into the grass. But do not attempt this if the ground is frozen. Mowing frozen grass will rip the grass to shreds. It's much better at this point to suck the leaves up with a leaf blower set on reverse and then empty the bag into your compost piles or, again, save them for garden mulch next spring. And finally, we get to trash picking, or as I like to call it, rescuing SPBs. Back when I was younger, I would troll the streets of nearby Emmaus looking for SPBs put out at the curb. If they were filled with leaves alone, I would store them in their bags for shredding in the spring. But if they were a combination of leaves and grass clippings, I would just dump them in the woods. Never trust clippings from an unknown lawn. If that lawn was treated with commercial herbicides, the clippings and any compost made from them could be deadly to non-grass plants. Well, that sure was an interesting and somewhat philosophical look at your fall leaves now, wasn't it? Luckily for you, you can read that information over at your leisure or your leisure because the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. Just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week, and you will always find the latest question of the week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to cancel my compost if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 833-727-9588 or send us your email. You're tired, you're poor, you're wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. Please include your location and none of that North Pole stuff. 
you'll find all of our contact information, plus answers to more of your garden questions than you thought possible. Audio of this show, video of this show, audio and video of old shows, and links to our internationally renowned podcast. It's all at our website, youbetyourgarden.org. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show, an hour-long public radio show and podcast, all produced and delivered to you weekly by Rodale Institute Television and Radio in association with Lehigh Valley Public Media in the Christmas city of Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created when a hot air balloon escaped from the Iowa State Fair and he went from black and white to technicolor. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Joni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airwaves is Christine Dempsey. Our engineer is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Our peerless princess of profound production is Tavia Minnick. Our audio editor is the always lovely Jonas Bowen. Our video editor is judicious Jake Boyer. Our harassed and harried director of direction is Javier Diaz. Eric Werner is running the camera this week. Zach the Tack Wisniewski is he's probably around here someplace. Our beloved and beleaguered CEO, Tim Fallon, who is not our executive producer, is late for a meeting and is still wondering about what to buy for Christmas gifts. I'm half off after the holidays, Mike McGrath, and I'll be feeding my winter birds like wrens, woodpeckers, chickadees, and other summertime bug eaters all the suet I can find. Now, if I could only get them to wear these little masks. Here, birdie, here, birdie, birdie. Oh, and um, I'll see you again next week, okay? Here, birdie, birdie, here, little birdie, birdie. holidays are over and the crew and I are just waking up from our long winter's naps. So we have no idea what we're going to do next week. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and all I can say is that we'll have fun, I'll get into trouble, and I'll probably still be writing 2020 on my checks. That's on the next You Bet Your Garden.